0: Have you ever seen a plant and wondered, what is that plant? No one knows. Yes, they do. Garden Garden hose. hose. Have you ever found a pretty flower, wondered how to unlock its power? You know who knows. It's the garden hose. Garden hose. Welcome to the Garden Hose Australia podcast, where we talk all things gardening. Your hosts, Jamie and Erin, will wander down the garden path with tea or gin in hand and discuss gardening loves, hates, new discoveries, interview some of our garden heroes, visit inspiring gardens and continue a discussion about plants that started over 30 years ago in primary school. Welcome to another Garden Hose podcast Jamie what have you been up to this last week
1: well I've I've had a few things on the go but uh look it's that time of year it's the seasons have turned have you noticed that Erin yes my hay fever noticed that uh, (laughs)
0: yeah
1: crazy wind here yesterday Mm. crazy crazy wind Mm. I've um I've been out and about with some friends I a couple of months ago I, I got an invitation from a friend I mean, you've known me a long time. You know, sometimes I get slightly confused. Um, <laughs> no, never. <laughs> and what people actually say to me isn't necessarily what I hear. Um, <laughs> my delightful friend, South African Natasha, she called me and she said to me, what What? I heard was, Jamie, do you want to do mushrooms with my husband and Louise? <laughs> were you at all surprised or were you like, yeah, that sounds like <laughs> Natasha? I just thought it was very considerate of her to think of me. And I said, look, thank you, but I don't actually do mushrooms, but thank you, but if you want, shall I try and find someone for you? And she, <laughs> she said, no, you idiot, because she calls me an idiot and I let her on occasion. She's one of the few people yeah. that I would let call me an idiot. She said, no, there's this function on these tickets and there's a couple of tickets left. My husband philom and louise they're going to this thing it's a three course mushroom dinner and there's going to be people talking about mushrooms And i'm like oh yeah i could i could go to that that sounds fine and when it got closer i was like oh my god what was i thinking a monday night mushroom talk in the city (laughs) if we know anything about a commitment (laughs) oh it's a commitment i am a country bumpkin the city is sensory overload for me at the best of times but a monday night is very challenging and there's buses replacing trains at the moment like it was oh, a fight. Oh yes, there are. We have those. And so I'm with Willem and Louise and Louise is talking about oh this author's going to be there. Um Alison Pulio. She's she's got a new book out on fungus. And, oh, she's amazing. And I'm like, look, never heard of her, but she sounds, she sounds delightful. And Willem used to be a microbiologist and he knows a lot about fungi. And I yeah. felt like I was the third fungi wheel, Erin. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? I've been the fungi wheel.
0: I've might um, have been a third wheel before. It sounds fascinating, though. Spongy. <laughs> yes, it's like a puffball.
1: You know the puffballs? Yes. Yeah. Well. Um. So we go into the city, we, we trek, oh, thank God Louise knows the city because I don't, I was so lost. It was just nice to be able to follow your friends and they know where they're going. So we go to um, the Moat, beautiful little uh, cafe restaurant underneath the State Library for this event put on by the Wheeler Centre. Oh, I think I've been there before. I think
0: yeah. I've been there for like a cocktail party or something. Yeah, it was. it was very delightful. Mm. Mm.
1: We rock in. And there's this lady there that I know. We've got mutual friends. I've been to this lady's house, um, drank margaritas with her. <laughs> <laughs> great chat. And I'm talking away to her like, oh, great to see you. It's Jamie. I'm so-and-so's friend. She's like, yes, I remember. we drink margaritas. I'm like, we did. And my friend Louise has this very strange look on her face. Like, Jamie, what the, what the actual, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, Louise, a friend of mine. And she's like, yeah, I know. That's Alison Puglio. That's who we've come to see. She's just released her new book. <laughs> well, you, you mean my drinking buddy over here? Drinking <laughs> buddy. But I've been doing a whole lot of, like, oh, are you here as well? And the talk True. And she's like, no, no, um, no, just my book. And that's when Louise, yeah, explained to me what was happening. And I'm like, oh, I didn't get it. And it was a delightful evening and she's a fabulous communicator and um, it was sort of a pre-book launch due with um, uh, lots of booksellers in the room as well as the publisher. And uh, at the end I confessed to Alison that I didn't know we were there to see her. Um, I thought we were just going to a mushroom event and she's like, oh, but you bought your friends. I'm like, no, they bought me. <laughs> <laughs> You should have stuck with that
0: that story.
1: But I'll do anything for a laugh. Um, But so, Alison, being wonderful and charitable, and who has just written the most amazing book, her new book's called Underground Lovers. It's fabulous. Yeah, I had a great chat with Alison that I recorded for this episode of the podcast. So,
0: yes. All right, so um, maybe we'll just roll your interview then uh, and then see if we've got any questions afterwards. All right.
1: Alison, welcome to Garden Hose Australia. Thank you so much. Um, So before we get into discussing your new book, um, Underground Lovers Encounters with Fungi, I've got some mushroom housekeeping questions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've, I've got a question from um, Beth, who happens to be the mother of Dan, who Dan composed our um, theme music, so Beth gets to ask questions. Um, (laughs) I don't know whether you know the answer to this, but Beth wants to know, Uh, Beth loves mushrooms, but she can't eat them. They make her sick, except for Swiss browns. Do you know why that might be?
2: Well... (laughs) Mushrooms can make people sick for different reasons. And sometimes if a mushroom is poisonous, it might have a gastrointestinal toxin. And that can make you really sick. You might end up throwing up or feeling very nauseous. But oftentimes, it's not that we're actually sick, it's that we can't digest them. And so some fungi fungi are made of something called chitin, and chitin is, is very, very hard for most people to digest. And I'm thinking the fact that she can tolerate Swiss browns, this is a commercially produced mushroom, mm-hmm. and perhaps it's been selected because it has a lower chitin content. That could be why. So I'm just curious whether she's actually getting sick or whether she's having difficulty digesting them. And that can make you feel really sick. You can feel incredibly uncomfortable. In the stomach, you can, you know, really feel bloated and uncomfortable. So I'm not sure what type of sickness she's feeling, but if it's indigestion, it might simply be to do with the fact that wild mushrooms could have a higher chitin content, which makes them harder to digest compared to the Swiss browns. Which is a commercially produced species. That's what I'm guessing at. I'm not expert on this, but that would be my guess.
1: That was that was a curly one. I knew that maybe not in your uh, realm of knowledge, but I thought, look, we'll throw it in.
2: <laughs> Thanks for giving me a clanger to start with.
1: <laughs> Don't worry; it's all we all be fine from here on. Oh, um, so I've I've started reading your new book, um, Underground Lovers. I'm loving it. I haven't finished it yet. Um. But I'm having a little problem because as I was reading, I'm like, oh, oh, that's fantastic. I'll fold down that page because I'm going to want to come back to that and read that to my students. And then what I realised was about 30 pages in, I looked and I've folded down five pages already. And I'm like, right. I don't know if this can continue the whole way through the book where every couple of pages I'm folding one down. So I'm going to have to find another system and maybe colour code it for you know, blue to read to students. Uh, green to read out for podcast, but um, uh, but I'm oh, just I'm loving it. Um, and I I took your book into class to show to my students, and I had your website up on the screen in the classroom, and I'm showing them your photography, Thank and they you. were really blown away. Um, your photos are exquisite. Um, Thank you. And I was showing them the cover of your book. So if we can start there, can you can you tell us about the cover of your book? What what fungi is on the cover?
2: Okay so you're looking at a really fascinating Australian fungus known as the ghost fungus or its scientific name is Omphalotus nidiformis if you like to to use the scientific name and this one I think is one that's always intrigued people because it bioluminesces that means it produces this luminescent soft glow based on the chemicals within the fungus so that photograph isn't taken with any flash It's taken in complete darkness just by the light emitted from the fungus. And we know about other, you know, bioluminescence has been known about for a long, long time. It started, you know, back with Aristotle, knowledge of marine creatures that bioluminesce. But fungi do it in a different way or for a different reason, we think, than many other animals that 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 bioluminesce. And we don't really know why, why it bioluminesces. It was thought for a long time that perhaps it was trying to attract a a nocturnal vector, that is an organism that helps distribute its spores, perhaps a moth or some kind of nocturnal mammal. But they've done some studies where they looked at the number of insects visiting these luminescent fungi, and it seemed to be comparable to the ones that visited fungi that didn't bioluminesce. So that theory is kind of blown out the window. We think it's not actually trying to attract the vector. And so the, I guess the rather unsexy scientific explanation is it could be what we call a secondary. Metabolite and what that means—it could just be a, bro- a byproduct of another chemical reaction that's happening within the fungus. And as a as a byproduct, it produces energy through this this glowing, rather than it being a specific function with a purpose. If you know what I mean. Yeah. But I've got a my my five-year-old friend. She told me that she thought it was to do with helping wombats find their way through the forest at night, and that's what it was purpose. Oh, I really <laughs> so like her that idea. Yes, but um, this fungus—it's actually. Quite common. Like people say, oh, where do you find these? And they're very, very well—not very, very common—but I see them pretty much every autumn, and they grow in great abundance, particularly in places like the radiator, radiator pine plantations that we see around the state. You find them growing on the stumps of pines, but they'll also grow on eucalypts. So you find them in native bush as well. They're all through the Otways, for example, in southern Victoria. There's many of them here at the moment in central Victoria. So it is a relatively common fungus. But because a few of us wander around the bush at night, we don't often see it. So you need to go and find it during the daytime and then come back in the evening when it's dark to see it's glowing. So that's – I thought, you know, it's quite a big story about this one in the book, and I think fungi that do interesting things like, you know, produce interesting compounds like psychedelics or toxins or glowing in the dark. I think, you know, these these fungi are of more interest for many people than your your LDMs, your little brown mushrooms. So I gave this one a bit of a focus. <laughs>
1: I, I do find that um, uh, because I teach teenagers, they think um, every fungus that they see in autumn, they're like, is that is that a magic mushroom? I'm like, listen up, guys. No. <laughs> they're magic in their own way. But I think right. you're asking me a different question. And what I'm saying to you is none of you touch these. Um, you don't know what you're eating. So don't go there. Yeah. Um, do you find... Um, you know, I know my reaction as a teacher is like, no, nobody eat anything. Um, and I feel that's responsible. But do, do you find there's a lot of fear around fungus?
2: Absolutely. And, and these are very old historical fears. And I've been trying to understand why we're so fearful of fungi for about the last 30 years. I've been trying to understand where our attitudes towards them developed and why they're so different to other organisms. I mean, I know a lot of us don't, you know, a lot of people don't like crocodiles or snails and slugs, but we seem to have this extraordinary fear or we we malign fungi so much more generally than animals and plants. And I've been spending a lot of time building back through historical records, talking to people across cultures, trying to work out why that is. And you particularly find it within English-speaking cultures. It doesn't seem to be the same for many continental European cultures. It doesn't seem to be the same for some Asian, some African cultures, but very definitely it seems a lot of us who come from a British heritage, I think this is where it comes from. There is this fear of fungi, and I think there's a number of reasons why. And I think probably the main one is that for a long time... We couldn't explain this sudden appearance, this spontaneous appearance of the mushrooms, the ring of mushrooms on the lawn. We didn't understand why they appeared. And the next time we looked, they were gone. And I think this both the spontaneity and the ephemerality, the fact that they're so short-lived, it seemed inexplicable. So all these amazing folk tales and myths arose across the centuries and across cultures to try and... Both explain their, their presence, but also to warn the, you know, the the unwary of them, that they could be, you know, associated with things like witchcraft or the supernatural or some strange visitation that we couldn't explain. So I think that's part of it. We don't like uncertainty. Humans like certainty. We don't <laughs> like things that appear we can't explain, and then they go again. So I think that that spontaneity and is part of it, but I also think A lot of the, you know, we we knew very early on about the toxins and some of the chemicals that they had. So, you know, that was to be feared as well. And then we had that whole, you know, rise of of witchcraft. And so inexplicable things were all pinned on witches. And, And another reason, I think, is that it seems that a lot of the early knowledge of fungi was actually held by women. Oh. and that knowledge was passed from grandmothers to daughters to granddaughters and you know during that whole period of the the renaissance in europe and we saw that transition in the way knowledge transpired from sort of you know folk knowledge through to the more formalized approach to medicine and science where anyone who continued to to practice folk knowledge was sort of yeah you know, deemed a witch or unreliable in their knowledge so I think gradually that knowledge was taken away from women so that could be part of it too it was associated with women it was associated with witches uh, the ephemerality of them not knowing what their purpose was people trying to explain what they did and then in the English language we saw this incredibly negative language arise around fungi you know and if you think about you think about if, say, a love relationship is doing really well or even the economy is doing really well. We use these very positive botanical terms like budding or blossoming or blooming. But when something's not doing well, say crime is increasing or oh, even plot holes on the edge of town, we say they're mushroom.
1: Oh, oh my gosh, I've never thought of it like that.
2: Yeah, we, we, we often have these. You know, if you look up, you might have heard of the the digital online archive called Trove, where things like all our newspapers have been digitised, and if you put the word "mushrooming" into there, other than the context of where people are literally mushrooming looking for mushrooms, when it's used more metaphorically, it's always in negative context. And if you look just at the newspaper articles, they talk about you know the mafia is mushrooming and and you know the the brothels are mushrooming and pornography is mushrooming and all these really negative associations. But we don't say a new love relationship is mushrooming. We say it's blossoming. Mm. (laughs) So fungi, the language was really negative. If you even right now were to put the word, if you go into an online thesaurus and you put the word fungus in, you'll be horrified what comes up. You'll get (laughs) words like pestilence and blight, blot on the landscape, you know, disease. You never get a synonym that says most important kingdom of organisms that hold terrestrial ecosystems together. So I think... Language, we don't have a, a proper language, it's a de language, but it's also a negative language. It really shapes people's thinking, yeah. it really affects how we think about them. Yeah. So, I think there's multiple things. So, it's a very long answer to your question. No, I loved it. Multiple things going on here.
1: Wow. Um, so, you know, talking about that sort of cultural fear. Um, and that in English-speaking countries it seems to be more prevalent. Um, But can you tell me about that? That's not everywhere. Like you spend half your year in um, Switzerland um, and travelling from there. Um, In Switzerland they have mushroom police. Can you tell me about them?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so this is people sort of, again, the word police, we go, oh, dear, what are they going to do? They're going to come along and arrest us if we collect mushrooms. That's not the case. It's actually they're there to help us identify and differentiate edible from toxic species. So this is a service that's been going on in Switzerland. And remember, Switzerland's a pretty small country. It's only probably a bit more than half the size of Tasmania. So it's a little country for over 100 years. They've had these mushroom inspectors or mushroom police or Pilzkontrolle is the, the word in German. And they there's 408 mushroom inspection offices in this, in this tiny country that you can go along to with your basket full of mushrooms I'll pluck out the toxic ones and send you home with the edible species. So it's the most incredible service. It's the only country in the world other than parts of Finland has something similar. And in France, the pharmacists used to know quite a bit about edible toxic fungi, but I, as far as I'm aware, it doesn't exist anywhere else. And it must have saved many, many lives because, you know, Swiss are oh, very big foragers. I mean, I think there's only something like, Oh, seven point eight million people or something in Switzerland. And on a Sunday, seven point seven million can <laughs> go foraging for mushrooms. <laughs> so so, so a lot of people out looking.
1: It's a national um, pastime.
2: Say that again. It's
1: a national pastime.
2: It seems to be. It's 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 huge. I mean, it's not just in Switzerland. Of course, in East the Eastern Europeans probably know their fungi. Oh, I wouldn't say better than anyone, but I think the further east you go in Europe the more knowledge there is of the great diversity of species. Like you'll find the Western Europeans, Central Europeans, so the French and the Swiss and Austrians, Germans, they tend to forage for three or four favourite species. You know, they're, they're after the, the Stadpilze or the SEP, you know, or the Puccino as we call it in Italian, or, or the Penny Bun in English. They're after those, they're after chanterelles, they're after a few truffles. But as you go further east into Europe, you'll find that, I mean, I guess it's following, you know, Economic line, but uh, generally, to go further east, well, I've got some birds visiting me, <laughs> you'll find there's a greater knowledge of the edibility of a greater diversity of species. So, and I guess that comes back to the fact that it's probably more subsistence foraging rather than today, it's mm. more so gourmet foraging in Western Europe. It's, it's supplementing people's diets, but they're probably not living on the fungi quite to the same extent as perhaps some in the east. And so, when I have people say from from Hungary or from Czech Republic or Slovenia or Romania or Poland come to my workshops. They they know dozens, if not hundreds mm-hmm. of edible species, and, and they'll collect a bigger variety. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think, yeah, there's more of a – I don't know that it's still subsistence, but more so than in the west of Europe. That's just my own observation. I'll be happy for someone to contradict me about that because this is nothing I've seen written down. It's just my anecdotal observation that – that people, it's become more gourmet in the West. It's still a, a more significant part of the diet in the East, East of Europe. So, but yeah, it's it's fascinating. So the mushroom inspectors, I've learned so much over the last twenty odd years from just spending time with them and watching what people bring in in their baskets and why they make mistakes. Can they not understand, say, the difference between a mushroom that grows with a pine compared to a spruce compared to? a larch and can they not recognise these different trees and is that why they're mixing up the mushrooms or are they not actually smelling the mushroom to see does it have a particular chemical smell or a smell like fruit or vegetables or a smell like an animal chemical like you know there's different types of different fungi have different scents and this is a really important way to differentiate them. Or are they not feeling the texture to note, you know, does this, this one feel like suede or is it rubbery or buttery or waxy? And so using, you know, multiple senses helps us pick up different clues as to the identity of the mushroom. so I've been fascinated to see why people make mistakes and why they mix them up. And that helps me. When I'm back in Australia, to to see oh, which are the species that people could be at risk of foraging and confusing? Which are the, the doppelganger or the toxic lookalikes that people are most likely to mix up? And then I can give those ones a focus when I'm teaching people about fungi.
1: Um, and you're talking there about you know this cultural knowledge in in different parts of Europe, um, and is that is that different in terms of um, the length of time that it's possibly passed on or passed down through the generations? You've you've also done a bit of work with um, indigenous groups around the world. So what's what's the difference they say between European knowledge of um, fungi? To are you seeing a difference in indigenous cultures where the knowledge is intact. What do they? What differences are they having? Like, is it just about food, or why are they using fungus?
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Certainly, food also as medicines, pharmaceuticals, also for other reasons. For example, we know some Australian Aboriginal groups, such as the Wiradjuri, the Jajawarrung, various groups, use particular fungi not just medicinally to cure things like cuts and sores and ulcers in the mouth as a particular fungus called a polypore, one that grows on the side of a polypore means many holes, many pores underneath. Like It grows like a half moon-shaped bracket on the side of, of trees and, and logs. We know they used those because they knew about their antibiotic compounds and they could cure cups and sores in the mouth with those. They used other, other bracket fungi or polypores to actually carry fire, to move fire from one place to another. And then there's some where they use the spores of some desert puffballs to actually use it like a dye to blacken the the greying whiskers of Aboriginal men. So they use them almost like cosmetics. (laughs) There's others who use the same fungi to protect against sunburn. That's in other parts of the world, in the Middle East and in parts of Africa. And then we know, for example, the Maori people of New Zealand used a fungus known as Ophiocordyceps, where they'd grind it into a paste with water, and then they use that as a pigment for facial tattooing. So it's more than just food and medicine. There's cosmetic uses, there's ceremonial uses, there's practical utilitarian uses, like I said, carrying fire, starting fire. But as you you mentioned, so much of this knowledge, it appears in Australia with our First Nations people, it just appears to be gone. So most of temperate Australia, because there's very few groups in any, I'm no expert, I'm not a, an anthropologist, or I'm not expert on this, but I... There's so few groups that haven't been affected in some way in terms of being moved off their land, language taken away, their dances taken away, so they can't pass on that environmental knowledge. It's really, I think, probably only up in the more remote parts of northern Australia, like East Arnhem Land, where people such as the Yongu have been on country, we think probably for 60 65,000 years, that they've managed to retain that knowledge. When there, was, there was three European attempts to settle that part of Australia and they all failed. And so I think, you know, unlike in in the southern half of Australia, where pretty much every group was moved off their land into missions and, you know, and stopped having their religions and their their languages and their traditions, so that knowledge is being lost. And the work I've been doing with some wonderful Yorta Yorta aunties up in Barma on the Murray River, the mighty Dungala, They've said, you know how how do you expect us to know the names of these fungi or what they're used for?" when we had our language taken away and the ways we used to transmit information, it wasn't necessary, you know through writing it down. it was doing a dance or or some other cultural activity that explained or described how different species were used. so it's it's really I mean it's been incredibly, yeah, it's shocking, it's confronting to. When you talk to people and you see that this is gone, how do we retrieve these skericks of information? But I've been heartened to work with these two wonderful women, Greta Morgan and Hilda Stewart, the two Yorta Yorta aunties, and various others up there who are trying to retrieve any last skericks of information knowledge that's still there. As far as I know, this is the first project in Australia to try and retrieve traditional knowledge of the, the use of fungi. So that's been, yeah, incredible privilege, very exciting and an amazing experience.
1: I, I suppose um, while you've been talking about all this, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking I didn't expect this in part to have themes of dispossession um, across the world, you know, that the women's knowledge, well, that's frowned upon and their witches and then colonisation obviously takes away traditional knowledge and seeks to squash it. And I was like, oh, it's a, it seems to be a theme, doesn't it?
2: yeah look, and also, when I was approached by New South Publishing to do this book, i I was aware that there's been about a dozen popular books on fungi that have appeared in the last six or eight years. All of them are from the u k. Some from continental Europe and from the U.S., isn't others from Australia? But I looked at the tables of contents of all of these books, and I wanted to write on themes that haven't been written about. So there's been quite a lot written over the years, for example, about psychedelic fungi, and of course there's a lot written about the the, the ecology of fungi or what fungi are, what they do. But I looked at there was really obvious gaps that weren't included, and I thought, hang on a minute, mycology or the study of fun- the scientific study of fungi has, you know, quite a long history. And there was actually lots of women involved, but we don't know anything about them because they were usually the the collectors of mushroom specimens, the illustrators of them. They put them into herbaria and things, but they collected them for the male scientists. And we never actually hear about the work that these women did. They were often in what's referred to as honorary positions where they're they're honoured but not paid. Mm. And some of us know, for example, about Beatrix Potter. She's sort of getting more... I mean, of course, we know her from... Peter Rabbit and the wonderful children's books. But before she did that, she was actually an amateur mycologist who produced hundreds of amazing. Watercolors and illustrations of fungi, and she observed them and how they released their spores. And you know, she wanted to present a paper that she'd written to the prestigious Linnean Society, which is the oldest biological society in the world in London, or the oldest ongoing one, I should say. But of course, you know, without a white chromosome, you can't get in the door. So, <laughs> so she well, she wasn't able to do that. Oh,
1: did they did they test that at the door?
2: <laughs> I don't think they do, but the fact that, yeah, she, she was obviously a woman, so, yeah, women's knowledge wasn't considered as reliable. That changed. So that, fortunately there's a group of women who rallied and women were finally accepted into the society. But some of us now know about Beatrix Potter. But here in Australia, we have an amazing woman who's discovered 20 species. She's submitted thousands of specimens, fungus specimens, to Herberia, and no-one knows her name. And she's done – she's worked for 20-odd years – all in a voluntary capacity. Her name is Pat Payne kutcher amazing woman. She's based at the Herbarium in Adelaide. And I thought, why don't we know this name in Australia? You know, if someone discovered 20 bird species or 20 plant species or 20 orchids, we'd know about it. And so I was trying to give a voice and showcase the work of these women who work away, many of them unpaid. Some of them are paid now, fortunately. There's many, many more of them working in biology around the world. But I wanted to, yeah, highlight the work they've done, historically and today. And then things like Indigenous knowledge, I couldn't find anywhere in any book any mention of Aboriginal, of of traditional uh, uh, knowledge of Aboriginal Australians, First Nations people of Australia, or of Māori people. So, I wanted to make that a theme of the book. I couldn't find anywhere in a book talking about the role of fungi and fire or fungi in climate change. So I was really trying to address themes that haven't been covered before. So and you're right, they all connect up. So traditional knowledge and women's knowledge, there's a link between them all as you as you recognise.
1: And um, it seemed to be, you know, uh, I've heard you talk about sort of communication with mycelium uh, growing through forests and things. But it, it strikes me that um, it's almost like you're a communicator for fungi. That um, mm-hmm. maybe we're not all listening to them, and that someone needs to go out and advocate for them and people who know about them and their environments. And so, like, wow, it's lucky the fungi found you, Alison. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, particularly given I'm actually a freshwater scientist. Yes. (laughs) But, um, yeah, look, I think for me, you know, sometimes there's particular fanciers of groups of organisms. You might be an orchid fancier or you might be a, you know, poodle specialist or something, or you might be really into butterflies or something. People have their favourite group of organisms. And for me, fungi aren't quite like that. Like, I love the different forms of mushrooms. Yes, of course, I think they're very aesthetic and they're beautiful things to touch and smell and hold and photograph. I I love their aesthetics, their forms and shapes. But for me, fungi represent something else, and and that is they represent a, a different way of thinking about our concepts of what nature is. And what I mean by that is so much of the frameworks of how we understand that thing called nature or the environment or biodiversity, what do you want to call it, is based on these admittedly, you know, wonderful frameworks that we got from people like Charles Darwin and Carl Linnaeus who gave us our naming system and developed this notion of, you know, kingdoms of organisms. But a lot of that sort of hinges on, I guess, the biological autonomy of species, the individuality of species, but also individuals. So for example, think about We go out and do an orchid survey and we write down the species we see and we get this lovely list or inventory, and this is very important. But I think in a lot of the ways we've... I guess, understood nature, the ways we practice biodiversity conservation, it doesn't always look at the interconnectivity between those organisms. And that's what fungi, that's what really excites me about fungi, is that we now know this concept of what's referred to as the wood wide web. So this idea that the internet is mirrored underground in terms of how fungi connect up different trees and other plant species, and that all these trees aren't lone statues or individual entities in the environment. They're all actually part of a system, a great big matrix of sharing of resources. There's also competition as well. It's not all cute and cuddly under there. There's some pretty serious warring going on beneath the soil. But I think that's where, for me, they're really interesting because we we think about it sort of topples some of the assumptions and challenges some of the ideas about how we walk into a forest and see things You know, as we see that bird there and that tree there and that wallaby bouncing over there and that mushroom. But there's actually a relationship between all of them. And and that's what fungi represent for me. It's the glue or the interconnectivity between, and and not just things, processes. It's about, you know, moving of resources and putting structures in soils and filtering water. And and that's, I guess, almost too as a metaphor for human societies and how we could do things differently. So it's at that level that I get really
1: excited about funky Do, do you think there's a lot more awareness of um I think about it as the great unseen you know we're so busy in our daily lives and getting from one place to another that we don't necessarily stop to to just look or think about things differently but I'm noticing um, you know, for example, the other day I was I was listening to podcasts while I was working. This um five-minute TED talk thing came on about um uh ocean creatures, particularly mollusks, and that some of them can eat um algae that photosynthesize, and then these creatures are able to other processes as well, not just ingesting algae, but then they can photosynthesize. It's like, wow. oh, wow, like. There's all this stuff going on that we just don't see or know about, Um, but it seems to be coming so much more mainstream. You know, this followed up with Adam Grant, the organisational psychologist, was talking to Yo-Yo Ma and great discussion, but Adam Grant says, what next for you, Yo-Yo Ma? And he's like, oh, well, now I'm really interested in, you know, getting out to the forests and meeting with First Nations people and mycologists. And I'm like, what? what What? this is fantastic and then a a horticultural podcast popped up next um uh, no till flowers from the usa and they're very interested in don't dig you're breaking up mycelium um but that that was interspersed with um uh, here's some Korean farming practices. Go to your local forest and collect leaf mold. And here's how you brew the microorganisms to take home for your garden and increase your soil health. And I'm like, wow, that's just one day. Um, there are a lot yeah. happened. And this is this is across the board. Are you noticing this in your travels?
2: Absolutely, and you're right. I mean, isn't that incredible? And isn't that so? And that gives you so much hope. And so, I'm so delighted to hear that in one day you heard all these very innovative ways of thinking and very different approaches and much more holistic and comprehensive ways of, and different ways of thinking about a garden or thinking about a forest or an ecosystem so I'm really inspired to hear what you're saying and it's exactly what I've witnessed too so it's now maybe 25 years I've been doing forays and workshops and things with people and thinking about fungi in different ways on different levels And but it's just really I'd say in the last four or five years that I'm seeing all these different entry points to which people get interested, I mean once it was pretty much you know, field naturalists who are wanting to survey what fungi are out there, or it was foragers looking for a feed. But now there's people, you know, bioengineers who are wanting to take that mycelium and see if they can come up with ways to replace synthetics and plastics and these terrible things that don't biodegrade. And you know, you've probably heard of Milo or it's M Y L O or vegan leather where fashion designers are actually using mycelium to make a very durable leather that has a much, you know, smaller environmental footprint than growing cows to produce leather. And then there's people, you know, in all sorts of areas like in in dance and in fiction and all areas of the arts who are being very inspired by fungi. Now, whether it's to sort of write characters into into books where you know the fungi play some role there, or whether it's to I had a dancer who was doing a choreography based on mycelium. and <laughs> I just thought, wow, wow. That's so exciting. So I think there's many more entry points, and particularly just the number of people who, I guess, are in some way maybe resisting industrialised agriculture and they want to grow more than just their veggies, they want to be growing commercial mushrooms. And now it's more than just your Swiss brown or your button mushroom. There's all these wonderful lion's manes and a great range of oyster mushrooms and shiitake and all these other mushrooms that you can grow at home. So I think you're right, there's been a real Fungal moment or fungal awakening, and I think a few key books and films have come out that have really captured the public imagination. So I think it's great that we're going beyond just flora and fauna to include the third earth or the forgotten F, the fungi. And so I think it's a really exciting time. If people want to get interested, you know, now there's resources and opportunities, as workshops, as you know, commercial producers, there's all kinds of ways to to get involved
1: and um reading your book alison like i i'm sensing that um fungi have taken you on a great adventure as well you have these wonderful stories about you know, where you've been and who you've met um but one that one that fascinated me in particular can you tell us how you ended up in the back of a hearse on the way to the international fungi conservation society meeting
2: Oh, look, that was was the most crazy evening. I mean, but this is what happens, you see, when you hang out, hang out with fungal types. You end up in all these extraordinary situations. But there's a little town on the east coast of England called Whitby, and there's a fabulous mycologist there called David Binter, who set up an organisation called the International Society for Fungal Conservation, and it was the first society in the world specifically look at how can we make sure our fungi aren't being lost how can we conserve fungi and include them in legislation and practices for protecting biodiversity so David set this up and he drew together a meeting of different mycologists and fungus enthusiasts and conservationists from all around the world to work out, you know, what what can we do to make sure we're not losing fungi? And, you know, a lot of this, of course, is about habitat protection, but we were all there in his hometown of Whitby to nut this out. What David didn't realise, or I didn't realise, or almost didn't realise is that concurrently, the same weekend, they'd scheduled the Goss Weekend. (laughs) So they had this big festival there where all the goths meet and, project you know Dracula up on the 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 walls of the ruined abbey on the hill and they all dress in these incredible gothic costumes and you know, amazing costumes they wear and they drive around in, in hearses <laughs> and I arrived sort of I was a bit late and and of course it was raining and um I was I was about 2k from the restaurant but I thought I'm going to be drenched and so I said, I'm just going to hitch a ride and it was you know first car sped past the second one stopped and and I was late, and I was wet, and it was raining, and I ran towards it. And the you know the back tailgate flips up, and then I go, hang on, this is a pretty big car, and it was a hearse. <laughs> <laughs> but there was, but there wasn't a dead body in the coffin. There was three very alive ones in the back in the coffin, and they belonged to the champagne drinking goths. Who, when I jumped in, I thought, oh my god, this is this is the weirdest ride I've ever hitched in my life. But the irony was, when I told them where I was going. To a fungus conference, they looked at me like I was the weirdo. So, <laughs> so, so that was pretty interesting. And I remember over that weekend walking to a bar, you know, and there's a group of mycologists and there's a group of goths. And the barman said, "I, I just can't work out which of you are the strangest," you know. So, <laughs> so, so that it was pretty good fun.
1: And um, in the Southern Hemisphere, here in uh, particularly in Victoria, we're just about uh, well, we're in autumn, um, but you know, it's kind of, I feel like we're waiting for something, Um, you know, things are, the days are starting to get a bit shorter, I know where I am in the Dandenong Ranges, Um, you know, it might be a couple of days, I'm like, oh, is it autumn, and then the Karawongs come in, and they sing a three-part chorus, and I go, righto, it's autumn now, they've just called it, thank you, Um, but we've had a little bit of rain, maybe not enough, maybe my soil's still too warm, but It feels like we're on the verge of mushroom season.
2: And don't you love that sense of anticipation? Yes. I love that feeling of being on the verge and I love that. I always love transitions, you know, whether in space or time. I love this sort of the days get gentler, the sun gets lower, you know, it goes down earlier, the air smells different and your senses are rumbling there under the soil. (laughs) And we're not quite seeing the mushrooms yet exactly instead, We need the soil temperature to drop down a little bit more, we need more moisture in the soil. And they're the sort of two main triggers that we think, you know, stimulate mycelium to produce mushrooms. There's probably other things happening as well, but they're the two when we get that soil temperature drop, the moisture level increase, up come the mushrooms. And I think you're right. I think in the next hopefully few weeks we're going to see them start appearing and certainly already in places that are irrigated in some public gardens. Mm-hmm. We'll see some already starting to pop up, but the great majority will appear in the next couple of months. So I love like this anticipation. Who's going to be the first up? And, <laughs> and you know, I just love this idea of the, the fun view. They're not really waking up because they're there under the soil the whole time, but you feel like when we see them appear above the surface of the earth, it's just something that... I don't know, it turns adults into children like we're on some treasure hunt. I, I love going out on the foray with all these adults who start squealing and crawling around on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> there's something you know, about the sense of the hunt, and not, I don't mean particularly even edible fungi, but just finding these beautiful and curious and bizarre forms and seeing where they grow and how they grow, and then come back the next day and where did it go? You know, it's disappeared. So I love this sense of anticipation as the seasons change.
1: And what are you most looking forward to this autumn? Is there anything that you particularly like, uh, want to see, something maybe you haven't seen before or an old favourite? Is there is there anything in particular you're looking forward to?
2: All of the above, everything you say. So, you know, every time I go out, there's something I haven't seen before. It might not necessarily be... A new species. Or quite often it is a species I've never seen before. Perhaps I've seen it on the internet or at a field guide, but very often I do see something I've never seen. But often I see something in a different context. So I'll see a mushroom that I've you know, always expected in one particular place and then it's somewhere else. Or I'll see that species in a different form because it's grown perhaps when it's moist and then we've had a week of really hot weather, so it's grown in a more peculiar or unusual form or the colour's washed out, so it's a species I'm familiar with but it's a different colour. So even if it's the same species, you're always seeing them in different contexts or different developmental stages or in association with different other different fungi or different plants. So I guess for me, every day, I mean, I walk in the bush pretty much every single day, particularly in autumn. And there's always something I'm trying to figure out. Like, why is it there? Like, why is it chosen that spot mm. rather than there on the hill? Or why is it growing with these eucalypts but not with those blackwoods down the hill there? So every day a thousand questions come up. I see different species. I see the same species, different contexts, sort or of different forms. Or I don't see anything. I think, what's going on? Why aren't I seeing? So every day is an adventure I <laughs> of love discovery.
1: It. I um uh I tried taking photos of um some mushrooms last year and it's like I'm just so ill equipped you know it's like I'm walking the dog and I saw this fabulous thing going on on um a eucalyptus that was growing on the side of the road and had moss growing up at it and then sort of peeking out of this crevice through the moss were these little red mushrooms. I'm like, oh my God, what are you doing there? Hello. And I'm I stopped and I'm talking to this tree um and its life forms that are growing with it. And I'm like, God, if the neighbors hear me, this this is tricky. <laughs> but I'm trying to capture photos of it. And uh my iPhone just isn't equipped for that. But I notice um your photography is amazing. Like has that evolved? Your photography knowledge and equipment, has that evolved? in your travels and over time as well?
2: Look, it actually has. It's it's changed quite radically and, look, you're right, they're hard things to photograph, particularly when you've got a dog or a neighbour. <laughs> <laughs> Those things, it's your best to go photographing mushrooms without the dog or the neighbour. You don't want you need that time to, you know, spend time with them and get to, to know that mushroom and, and what's its best angle and to get it to smile and all the rest of it. But you're right, I, I guess what's changed for me, I mean, my, interest in fungi actually began with their aesthetics. So, And that took me to the science. It began with, like, thinking, wow, why is it this colour? Why is it this kooky form? And then wanting to understand the science or the reasoning behind why they grew, how they did, like, why they did, where they did. So I went to the science of fungi, but to me, the aesthetics and the science are very closely interlinked. They're not separate things. Often we, you know, separate out science and arts, but for me they're very, very closely associated. But I guess the thing that's most changed for me is once, I guess, I photographed them very, I guess, scientifically. I wanted to show their important diagnostic features. So we could say, oh, yeah, this is species X because we can see that the lamellae or the gills underneath are in this arrangement or the the stem or the stipe, as it's called, has this particular particular texture or something. So I photographed them as what I call informational shots to show particular features or characteristics. Whereas over time, I've become more interested in almost obscuring those things to try and appeal to people's hearts rather than their minds. And I call these inspirational shots as opposed to informational. So an informational shot tells us something about that fungus that appeals to someone's cognition. An inspirational shot appeals to their heart. It says, so I'm hoping that person doesn't go, oh, that species X. they go oh, wow, isn't that beautiful or isn't that bizarre? And so I guess I'm more, I've moved more in that direction now to sort of try and showcase their beauty or their strangeness or their unusualness rather than a, a diagnostic shot that we can put in a field guide. So I guess we will just it because I think conservation, I think where we really need, I mean, now we've got lots of knowledge about what species are out there. I don't just mean fungi, I mean, all biodiversity. We understand, I mean, we still need more, we still need more knowledge. We've got lots of inventories of what species are where but I think what we need is more care. I think we need people to be so in love with, with the environment, mm. with fungi, with whatever species, with whatever ecosystem. Once you, be, you know, fall in love with something, you care about it. And that's where I feel my photography shifted rather than just trying to convey information. I'm trying to engage hearts. So it's a very different way of photographing.
1: And I think, I think your photography does that. Um, oh
2: thank you I'm thrilled thrilled that you think that because I never know whether I achieve that or not so I'm really touched that you say that
1: showing it to my students I collectively call them the youth of Australia um (laughs) there's there's not it's not all of the youth of Australia I can't fit them all in my classroom at one time (laughs) but um just showing them your photography and seeing the look on their faces when they're like what is that and you know, for them, they, they're not looking for scientific bits of a fruiting body. Um, mm. It really is about capturing for them, I suppose, their imagination at this stage to lead them on a path of curiosity to, oh, I, I wonder what else or what if, or, oh, I remember that from that crazy horticulture class. And, yeah, I think that it's so important. They This science doesn't necessarily capture them, but the curiosity and the imagination does.
2: And isn't that the most important thing you can do as a teacher to try and stimulate their curiosity, and imagination? I think there's nothing more important you can do. And sure, you know we can run classes or workshops where pe- people have to learn x number of species and how the organism is built. That's important to understand that. But I think if you can trigger someone's imagination, you can capture their curiosity. Then they'll teach themselves. You know, if you can just get them, into it, then they will teach themselves. They'll learn every single mushroom that's out there. <laughs> I get blown away working with some young people who, you know, they're just, once they're hooked, once you're fungally infected, there's no going back.
1: (laughs) Well, a lot of them are talking about that as well. They're they're watching The Last of Us, and um, so they are talking a lot about fungal infections, yes. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. so, Alison, I just thank you so much for your time today. You've been very generous. And um, just for any of our listeners that don't have your book yet, I'm sure what's going to happen now is, because I'm going to tell them too, you, listeners, you need to go out and buy Alison's book, Underground Lovers. Um, and I am actually looking forward to please tell me that you're going to do the audio version so that I can have you read it to me. <sighs>
2: I'd love to do that. I'd love you to flip New South Publishing an email. I'll do that. that. So I'd absolutely love to do an audio recording of the book, and that's the decision the publisher makes. So I'd be thrilled if there was some, some interest oh, from listeners to have something like that.
1: I'll, I'll get my crew onto it, and okay. um, we'll sort that out. <laughs> so once again, thank you so much for your time today, Alison. I really appreciate it.
2: Oh look, and I really appreciate your your interest and support, and the fact that you're getting the, the fungal message out there. And I think when you know when we think in ecosystems in a bigger way, like you're inspiring and and trying to capture young minds, I think that's the most worthy thing we can do as teachers. So thank you so much for your interest.
1: Oh, thank you. Oh, I hope you enjoyed that, Erin. Um, I did. Oh, now I want to go and get that book. You'd be crazy not to. Um, I want to look at all the pretty
0: pictures now.
1: Look, there's not a heap of colour pictures, but the it's worth it for the front cover.
0: Mm. Um, and I was Googling it and looking it up and it looks fascinating.
1: And I just want to encourage you all who are listening, go out and buy a copy, but also get onto her website. It's fabulous. Her photography is amazing. And then I also want you all to email her publisher to request that she does Underground Lovers as an audio book because I want Alison to read it to me and I need wow. all of you to express interest in that for that to happen.
0: I love an audio book. Almost as good as a podcast. Almost. <laughs> oh, thanks for that. Look, and in um, the show notes, we'll pop in a link to um, Alison's website there and so that you can all click onto that directly. Uh, and we will resume next week. For another chat about our garden doings. I'll see you next time, Erin. All right. Bye. Just a note on our very catchy garden hose tunes, we have our original music composed and produced by Martini Toothpick. Martini Toothpick are Dan Zielinski and Mika Coleman.
1: We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we reside and recognise their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities and recognise that their wisdom and knowledge has been passed on for thousands of years.